Welcome to episode 52 of the Ski Instructor Podcast. My name is Dave Burrows and I am the director and owner of Snowpro Ski School based here in Valdilier in Switzerland. Hope you're all well. Um, I'm surrounded by paperwork, but I've got a couple of days off. Wife and child are off uh, on holiday getting some winter sun, leaving me to uh, half term and managing my team of extremely busy instructors, um, which is great. Uh, the, the the first week of the UK half term has uh, it's been and gone. That was absolutely crazy and it's starting to calm down now towards the end of this week and uh calms down slightly and getting back to our sort of normal rhythm of work for next week um snowed last night so there's a bit of fresh snow on top of the high mountains just uh looking out my window here and um yeah should give the higher slopes a bit of a top up or a bit of a refresh which is pretty cool and there's more snow due uh on friday night um, I'm not going to sit here and go on and on and on um, because I've just got too much to do uh, today. Um, but I've managed to find like a small bit of time to uh, to edit um, part two of this podcast with Stuart and um, put it all together. So which is um, which is pretty cool. Um, so this is uh, part two of the podcast that I recorded with Stuart. I didn't really feel like I'd done done it justice in the first part. So we had a we had another sort of separate conversation, and this one was just before the ski season. So there's um, there's a bit of kind of chat in there um, about me sort of prepping for the ski season, which is kind of where we pick it up when we uh, um, just after the the musical interlude that's just coming up. Um, I'm going to go straight through with this because I've got nothing to say in the middle bit either. Um, the yeah, we talk about sort of the value of practicing um, skiing indoors. We talk about marketing. Um, it's a bit of a chat on, on kind of how ski schools market themselves there, um, which I thought was you know particularly interesting chat. Um, we talk about bumps. We talk about how an independent ski instructor in the UK accesses the indoor slopes and how that all works. Um, more chat on mental approach, more chat on back. I'm going to try and tone down the back chat um, now because uh, my back is still treating me well and I just don't want to give it any more attention, to be honest with you. Um, and uh, yeah, so um, there you go. Um, so yeah, very much uh, hope that you can enjoy this, um, uh, that you've got the time and that you are able to enjoy um, this episode of the podcast for, for those of you working ski instructors I'm hoping that you've got lots and lots of work this year has very much seemed like a, a sort of a back to normal year um, tourists have come back on mass and um, and certainly all of the ski schools that I know um, have been extremely extremely busy so it's nice to to get back to some sort of normality after a very weird um, two or three years uh, previously anyway enjoy the podcast and um, I think we start off talking about um, boots so enjoy. See you on the next one. Yeah, I think so. I'm quite, I had a dream about skiing the other day, so I'm kind of ready now. And I'm also trying to break in a new pair of boots. So every night I'm kind of sitting, sitting around here, walking around the house in, uh, in, in my new boots, which are actually they're really snug, but I think they're going to be really good. Um, I've kind of got a new liner, a new boot, and it's the new Raptor boots. It's got a bit more space in the toe box, the head mm. Raptor, and uh, that'll be nice because I think it'll keep my toes a bit warmer and, and give me a bit more flexibility on the foot to actually... The old Raptor had quite a downward slope after that little bit of rubber that keeps the water out. And uh, now it's sort of a bit more, looks a bit more like the front of a, a basketball shoe or something. So... 
I think the, the theory is is that your tap your toes can move better, um, which should be should be should be quite cool. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm interested to see if it makes any difference to have because you know it's part of how the, the foot works is the toes should move. You know, it's not that they they shouldn't be jammed down. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we'll see. See how that goes. See how that goes. So tell me a bit. Um, I used to ski a lot. At, um, I've already started recording. By the way, I'm gonna okay. sort of cut some of this because um, I think that's quite interesting anyway. But the tell me about Milton Keynes X Cape because I remember going there when it first opened because it was like a that was a long, long time ago. Um, it's not that long though. I don't know how much sort of valid race training you can get in in there. It's not. It's not a huge slope, is it? It's not the biggest one for sure. No, it's not. I think it. I'd be guessing. I think it's around 170 right. uh, metres long. I think. I'm guessing, though. It, I'm probably not quite correct there, but it's in or around that kind of length. Mm. Um, and actually, you can get quite a lot done on that type of terrain. Um, just because, you know, you, you know, like when you're in the mountain, you can get distracted skiing other runs and other yeah. terrain. Yeah. Whereas skiing... Yeah, and then you can kind of lose focus about what you're doing. And, and actually, in like in that kind of controlled environment, you can just kind of choose one thing and loop and practice it for however long you want to practice it for. Mm. Um, so I actually find that you can actually get quite a lot done, even though it's short. Mm. Um, but, but what I have found actually on that note is that you have to you have to be 100 percent focused each run almost. Yeah. So yeah. Like if there are other people skiing, so you've got other kind of obstacles and things, you have to stop, wait for a gap, but but actually focus before you ski down. Because otherwise, if you suddenly remember halfway down, oh, I was working on X, mm. uh, you're at the bottom. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's quite good for kind of focusing that attention to one kind of specific element, as it were. I hear you because that I mean that's quite important for general skiing anyway isn't it it's very easy I think when you've got like limitless terrain you know so you you just ski off from the top of Morjan or wherever it is that you are top of Crozet like you could ski for miles and you could be daydreaming think about all sorts of other stuff like if you've got real concrete goals that you want to work towards it kind of it almost helps I think when I've done training in the past it's just to kind of lap a lift or session one particular slope over and over and over again as opposed to kind of like you say getting distracted and going off and just sort of not choosing the right terrain for the kind of thing that you're looking to do exactly yeah no I, I agree with you there fully yeah definitely um, and because you haven't got those choices of going to other places you've mm. only got one slope mm. you, I, I guess that kind of helps as well but what I would say is a lot of people I guess more kind of holiday makers maybe that might go up there and have a ski rather mm. than go and train and then they get bored. I, I completely understand. Like I wouldn't want to necessarily go there and just go and have a ski. It has to be purposeful, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like practice, uh, what do you call it? Focused practice, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Instead of, right, let's go up to Milton Keynes or Hemel or wherever it is. And let's just go and have a ski. I think there has to be some, some purpose behind it to keep that so you don't get bored you know do mm. half an hour working on whatever it might be or 40 minutes and then switch on to something else um 
And actually, that's something I've noticed over time, like coaching on uh, on dry slope and snow domes and things like that is like coaching that way as well. Like not, I used to just say, for example, just try and work on their long terms for as long as I could until they got better. But then I realized over time that actually there's only a certain amount of time you can focus on one thing, particularly in that environment. So I often find anywhere between like 45 minutes and an hour is a good time to swap on something different mm-hmm. so that so that they change at their peak rather than coming off of their peak. Um, yeah, so there's sort of coming out of the focus practice, feeling good, and then you move it on to something else, right? Yeah, exactly. It's almost like, right, you've done your best run, now let's change on to something else, which might seem a little counterproductive, but actually I often find, and you probably find this as well, I'm sure most people do, is someone will do an exceptional run, but they might only do one of them. They'll do, they'll obviously improve and improve and improve through a session, mm. and then they'll get to a point where they'll do a really good run, and then after that, like, it, it, it won't come back again, if you see what I mean. So it's almost the time to change yeah. onto something different. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I've learned that myself, anyway, with coaching other people, is don't try and push for that extra quality run, because it, it generally doesn't happen. They'll have an exceptional run, and then maybe not again for another couple of days, if you see what I mean, as yeah. opposed to, like, that during that day or, or in that kind of, part of a session as it were no i do see that. that 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 is something that happens quite often and I've, you know i think it's it's part of the skill of the instructor is to say yeah okay that's that's really quality let's kind of just knock it on the head there let's go and do something different um yeah you know knowing when to to kind of quit on a high note all of those kind of cliches right um that's cool and you reckon that that's somewhere in indoors that arrives somewhere between 45 minutes and one hour. Definitely. I would say so. Yeah. As long as you, I, I aim for around that. Mm. So, but I normally find that's the kind of the window. It's not often get, it doesn't often get closer to the hour. It's closer to the 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. So generally, like if I'm working with someone in a, you know, in a snow dome somewhere and say I'm working on long terms, I might do, and that includes their warm-up as well, like yeah. whatever that might be. But I might, I generally, I have a specific focus within the long term. So, I don't know, balanced on the outside ski, for example. Mm-hmm. And then build the performance up during the warm-up and then, and then increase that performance through to the end of up to those 45 minutes and then switch yeah. and then maybe carry across, you know, being balanced on the outside ski into short term. So, I still have the same focus, yeah. but the task is different. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're carrying the same kind of thread, if you if you like, not thread as we understand it in in Bayesian world, but Basic like terms. yeah, thread as in like there's a common golden piece of yarn that runs through the session, through say a session of three hours. I'm guessing is what what you're doing, um, and the focus is similar. Oh, sorry, the, yeah. So the, the the focus is similar, but the tasks are different. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, and then actually, if and generally I work with people over a longer period of time, so it might not just be like that one or three hour session, it might be multiples of three hours over a, you know, over a year or whatever. Mm. So what you might find, as I'm sure you do, or anyone else, but like is 
you might have that same focus over a number of sessions. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you maybe experiment with how that's delivered, so it comes across so like more interesting, as it were, rather than, well, we're just going to do the same thing over and over and over. It, you will maybe have the same being balanced on the outside ski, for example, but delivered in a slightly different way over a number of different sessions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or whatever it might be, just using that as an example. But it's lovely to have the time with people to do that. Yes. That's a very, I yes. mean, a lot of the instructors who will be listening to, to this might be, I mean, you know, their experience might be slightly different. Let's say you're in a, a more tourist-focused resort and you don't see the same people regularly. You might see them once a year, but you might, you know, a lot of people like to, I think a lot of sort of tourist skiers like to go to different places and explore different resorts each each year. Um and so they're looking, I get, they don't get the luxury like you and I would do because our ski school has a lot of repeat clients, uh, people who come weekends, every weekend. Um, we don't get, <clears throat> they won't have necessarily that same luxury of doing what we're doing, which is, which is, um, you know, like getting to really get to know the client deeply and getting to know their movement patterns deeply and being able to make sort of fairly significant long-term change over time. Yeah, definitely, definitely. On that note, actually, so I do, in the mountains, if I've got someone for a week, if we're using that example, which I guess is more traditional ski school, I guess, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a similar thing that I do, but over a week period as opposed to months or years, for example. So um, you'll still have the same peaks. You have the benefit, though, in the mountain environment, or at least I find, of having the variety of terrain as well. So you can work on one, you know, like you said, looping on one lift or doing it on multiple things with the same, sorry, multiple terrain, but the same focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could have that same focus throughout the day if you wanted, and then just vary the task within that, that kind of time frame, as it were, if you had them throughout the whole day or if you had them for half a day, maybe half of the session working on one specific task or a couple of tasks with the same focus and then change onto the next. So it's a similar thing, but in a shorter time frame, I guess. Yeah. And the luxury that you have of a mountain environment, I guess, is like you can, you can take people to and from terrain according to their skill level for the task that you set. Right. So, yes. so, you know, if it's too hard on slope X, you can always take them to, you know, slope Y, which is a little bit more shallow and see if they can do it there and then, you know, work between places. That That's, that's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And, ch- and chop and change it as you need. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Spot on. Yeah, it's good. One of the things that we often do, though, I think the, 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 the the skiers or the ski instructors in a in a resort kind of um, environment also have to have one eye on. Let's say they're people that are visiting the region and they're here for a week or something like that. Their the goal of the client might not be the same as 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 the goal of say your typical client. You know, which might be to kind of get better over time, right? They're looking for a sort of focused practice. There's an element of, you know, when, when people come to touristic regions like this, is there, there's an element of like showing them around as well. Um, so you've got to kind of be quite careful to make sure that you know what the client wants exactly um, before 
you know, you just hammer them for three hours on like the same slope because it might be that they just want to be shown around and, you know, shown the sites and know the name of all the mountains and, and, you know, know where the best restaurants are and all that sort of stuff. That's something that, um, a couple of our guys, well, one of my guys, Mike in, in Villa does really, really well. He does the host thing really well. You know, he's a great teacher as well. Like, you certainly do all this stuff that we're talking about, but he does the host thing. Like, this is the best restaurant. These are the easiest slopes. This is when to ski them. You know, let me show you some of the secret spots, all that sort of stuff like that. That's in, in a place where the, the, the instructors are more, you know, tourist focused. That's very much part of, of the client experience that you want to give them. Oh, definitely. And I guess it's, I mean, we, I guess we all do it automatically anyway, isn't it? We obviously find out what, you know, the client wants at the beginning of the week or beginning of the session or mm. whatever, and, and obviously tailor whatever it is towards them. So if they want to develop their performance, they name it towards that. If they want us to look around, you know, get to know the area and improve their performance, then you obviously adapt um, the delivery according to, you know what their requirements are yeah i couldn't agree more yeah no that's that's a really good point but i'm guessing the way that your marketing and everything is set up you you attract uh, i suppose you know because your marketing then then sort of dictates which kind of clients you get right so you probably don't get so many of those type of clients you're looking for client you're you're the way forgive me if i got this completely wrong but everything that you you say and everything about you and the way that you sort of present yourself, I would guess tends to be the fact that you get clients that are looking for that sort of significant long-term improvement in their technique. That's a really valid point. And actually I hadn't consciously tried to do that with my marketing, but actually, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. That's exactly what I do with the content I put out. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, that's bizarre. I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. Yes, yes. So a lot of since being independent mm. um, and not working for other people, they are generally the type of clients I do seem to attract. Other people that are, you know, keen to improve, keen to make change. Mm. Um, le- uh, and yeah, yeah. No, you're right. And so the majority are like that. And even I guess that my the kids like the private coaching that I do with the kids and things, I get a similar thing, but you know, obviously balance that off with fun, but you, you're right. Yes. It's a, yeah. it's a, it's an interesting thing. Cause I think a lot of people, as I was talking to about this the other day, I was talking about, oh, I was talking to Max, uh, one of my instructors and he was, um, he, he makes surfboards in the summer. Um, and he was trying to work out, you know, sort of sales tactics for people that, that, that were interested in buying his boards. And I was like, well, kind of one of the first things that you've got to do I'm quite I'm quite a sort of a marketing head these days like I don't you know I'm, I'm I teach still but I'm kind of uh, a lot of my time is spent on sales and marketing and um, I think one of the things that any ski school or instructor independent instructor has got to work out for themselves is like what is it that they offer and which particular market niche are they going after because if you try to be like a massive generalist and you try to be all things to all men or women, um, I don't think that necessarily works. And it, it, I, I always find it funny when I go on other ski schools websites and I kind of see them, you know, there's like a, the client has an offering of made to them of about, you know, 25 different things you know do you want a three-hour collective lesson do you want an all-day collective lesson do you want kids do you want off-piece clinic do you want a freestyle camp do you want this that and the other it's like wow 
you know, like that's over choice. Whereas hopefully you, the client experience you would find when you come to Snow Pros is like, it's very clear what we offer, who we offer it to, and your choices are very limited actually. So it's like, here are our options. It's like this, this, or this, there's only three. And it's like all the marketing words are like set up to say, this is the kind of client that we want. And what that means is that we get the clients that we want, like that we work really well with, you know, it's not, I'm saying I only want, you know, like Russian people from, you know, with, you know, Russian oligarchs, for example. And by the way, there are ski schools set up for that, but there are the, you know, we are, we work very well with a certain type of client and they're the clients that we want. And that makes the whole sales process much, much easier. Whereas, if you try to put down like you're a massive generalist and you do everything, it might well be that you can do that, but it's a pretty wide net that you're casting and you're, you're not really talking to that particular subset of the market that you really, really want, you know, whatever it might be. I think it's, a, it's an important thing for ski schools and independents to work out what it is that they're good at, you know, and then to target it. Definitely. That's really interesting, actually. Um, I, I've done, I think I've said to you before, maybe earlier on uh, in this interview, I can't really remember now, but we spoke about so many things, but um, there's, I've done quite a lot um, of like online courses and things like that. And one of the courses that I've been on talks about finding your avatar, which is exactly what you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Is, uh, yeah. is, is finding, finding what the type of client that you would like and all the type of, yeah, exactly. And then designing your, business i guess towards that client and then aiming towards them rather than like you say generically to everybody because actually i found if you give people too much choice they don't make a choice at all <laughs> absolutely and that's like yeah, you know, it's modern life in general isn't it it's like over choice uh, i talked about it on the last or ranted about it on the last podcast that i had let's like the experience of going into a coffee shop in england is you've got too much choice you know um and in the end, you're just pissed off because you've got too much choice. You know, you just want a coffee. Uh, yeah. Oh, a good one. <laughs> so all you want to say is, I would like a coffee, please. And that's that. You don't really want to end up having, you know, like a million choices. The girl repeating back to you, oh, which one of these do you, which one of these 25 choices would you like for your coffee? It's like, well, <laughs> I'm not really, you know, I'm a busy guy. I haven't really got time to look at your menu. Can you just serve me a coffee, please? Um, I, th- I think something's been lost in, in, in life in general with this sort of over choice that everyone is presented with now. Um, cause I think everyone's just wandering around confused cause they've just got, <laughs> got too many choices, you know? Yeah. That's a good point. That's a really good point actually. But, but I mean, I think subconsciously <laughs> looking at your marketing and how you do things, you know, your website says what it says. Um, and you know, all your online marketing is very, very focused towards, people's personal development so like if i'm looking for a generalist ski lesson i'm probably not going to approach you necessarily you know because you're not offering that thing so Mm. although you say to me maybe you haven't sort of thought about it that deeply before i think you already have and you kind of already have designed it that way you just kind of not done it consciously if you see what i mean (laughs) (laughs) i think you're right and I i talk about what interests me as well so so I guess that's exactly it. It's I've subconsciously put the word out there that that's the type of client I'm looking for. But yeah, I guess it's it's what I'm interested in. I actually, I I believe 
if you, I guess, are passionate about whatever subject it is and mm. you can put that across, um, then, uh, you know, that helps people. And you put more, like, behind it as well. If you really believe in what you're kind of delivering and what you're talking about. Yeah. As opposed to necessarily... I don't know. In the past, I've worked for other people, and I haven't necessarily been convinced by the products, but I'm just delivering the product. Mm. Whereas I'm convinced by what I talk about, so maybe yeah. So it comes across. Hopefully, it comes across in a. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. Um, I think more authentically. I guess that's right. Yeah, yeah. And you attract like-minded people, and people can tell. Yeah. Right, people can tell when you're not authentic. And you're just kind of faking it. And so, you know, they can tell on a sort of a subconscious level that you're not what they want. And so they'll just go and find other people. You know, like when inquiries come through to the ski school, I know which ones we're going to get. And I know which ones we're not going to get. So my, you know, stats that I keep as to my kind of sales conversions, because I'm the salesman, I suppose, is that, you know, I like a, I'm not too stressed about the ones that, come and inquire because uh, that, that I don't get because I know which ones we won't get so I can kind of subconsciously put themselves out of my mind and curiously enough the ones well I'll tell you but the ones that that we don't get are the ones that mention price in their first message they're the ones I don't get because for us they're not necessarily in it for the right reason um, you know, we are you know, very focused on kind of the teaching aspect and kind of that, that sort of thing and where people mention price straight away. We just, they're not looking for the thing. They're not looking for the thing that we sell. So I'm kind of already, you know, dismissed them to a certain extent, um, which is curious, but it's just kind of how, what I've noticed. And those people will end up then with maybe like the local red school, putting their kids into a collective environment and they'll do that because it's it's cheaper and it's what they're essentially looking for is childcare, as opposed yeah. to skiing development for their kids um and that's okay you know like every ski school's got its usp and everyone does their own thing and you know that's what the local schools do is like mass you know mass snake groups and if you're okay with that as as you know what you want as a product then that's that's just also fine as well right that's a really good point, actually, about what you were saying about uh, um, comparing clients that don't necessarily they're there for they're there for different re- for the wrong well sorry not the wrong reason for different reasons other than coming to you or yeah, their it might reasons be are valid. trying to look for a lesson absolutely their reasons are valid right they're looking for something yeah. but you are not offering the thing that they're looking for so you can just let that yeah. go you know um, and it's not worth because their experience will be crappy if they come to you and they're not looking for the thing that you're that you're offering. So if you manage to kind of sell it to them, but you don't really, it's not the thing they're after. They're going to walk away disappointed, and then you'll get a bad review on you know on, on Google or whatever. So it's yeah. it's just it's fine, you know. And I often send clients off and say, you know, if you're not, we're probably not. You know, I'll say to them very often, you're not. Not so mean you're not our type of client, but we we don't offer the thing you're looking for. You should go and speak to X ski school. They do this, and I'm okay with that because it it means everyone wins. You know, like the guys that I'm referring to, they'll get a referral and say, "Oh, I spoke to Snow Pros, and they they you know referred me over to you." Well, 
that's great because next time I see that guy, he's going to be like, oh, thanks very much for that. You know, he knows that I'm a friendly guy. He knows that I'm not in necessarily in competition with him. I'm just doing my thing over there and they're doing their thing over here. And mm. that's all right. There's plenty of room, right? There's, there's the, the people that think there's only one pie and you can only spill it up a certain number of ways are, are kind of limited in their thinking, in, in my view. The other thing with that, actually, is a win. It's a win for the other company or school or whatever it might be. But equally, the client hopefully will feel, actually, you know, they've helped me out here. We don't necessarily fit with what they offer. So yeah. he's helping me by giving me a contact somewhere else. So Absolutely. And, and you know, they're, they're happy for it. And hopefully, they'll, hopefully, you know, they're not necessarily going to, but hopefully they're going to think, well, no, he's a really nice guy. And maybe one day when their, their budget is bigger or something, they'll come back to us. Maybe they won't. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter, does it? But... Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's quite an important thing, you know, like that that concept of because we're, if you look at the overall bigger picture from a touristic point of view, that person might have spoken to me, I might have referred them on to somebody else, and they might have then found the solution that they're looking for. But the important thing is that they come to the region, and they have their they're welcomed to this region, and that they spend their time here and they have a good time. And everyone's involved in that, you know, like everyone at the airport, everyone at the transfer company, everybody at the, I don't know, like, you know, everyone on the train, everyone on the, 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 in the restaurant, you know, everyone has got to do a good job to encourage those people to have a good time and to come back. Otherwise, they're lost, right? They're going to go somewhere else and, or do something else. Or they might go to the beach in February instead. Of spending I, all this money they spend on going skiing, right? I hadn't really thought about that, the bigger picture, but yes, you're 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 right, you're completely right there. Mm. And I mean, you're Depends part of that you... too, right? Because I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit of a rant here, aren't I? But the the the, the I mean, you're the, the guys at the snow domes do an amazing job, and I've said this before, and I I, I think I thank Pete on the Pete Gillespie on the um, on the podcast when I interviewed him because. The guys that get people ready in the snow domes that are coming out to a real holiday, uh, a real snow holiday, are doing an amazing job because they get all the basic stuff out of the way for us so that we can arrive at the top of the beginner slope and be sort of, oh, wow, you can already you know make your turns and, and do what they've done, all that stuff that takes a lot of time. Um, so those, you know, they're doing God's work, like those guys who are working in the snow domes for the regular ski schools. And then we'll get guys who ski with, you know, guys like you who want a bit of a kind of a, you know, a ski about, and they'll come with a really, really good technique or really good kind of thing. And we can kind of show them around and really cover some mileage. And, and it's like, I think we're all working together really, you know, all of us in snow sports. Definitely. Definitely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. What well, can we let's move um let's move this this on. So so you've got a hundred and seventy odd meters slope in Milton Keynes, obviously you don't only work there. I know the value of the sort of the focused practice that you can do. I, I actually came and skied this was as I was going through um the instructor system at some point I was a bit stuck on bumps. And I came and skied with Andy Bennett, who at that time, I don't know if he's still working with Warren, um, but there was a bumps day, and it was either at Milton Keynes or it was at Hemel, one of the two. And 
there was a huge amount of benefit that I got from just going round and round a mogul, a very small, it has to be said, small-ish mogul zipper line over and over and over and over and over again for a day. You know, I, I think it might be in Manchester, actually. Yeah, it was, because I remember flying in and staying in some horrific holiday in thing near the traffic centre. So it might have been, what's that one up in Manchester called? Um, Chill Factory. Chill Factory, right? So I was there. And... By the end of the day, I was getting super confident with it and, you know, I was really attacking this kind of bump line because it's consistent and it's got the same bump in the same place every single time. <laughs> and you can start to feel really, really good about yourself. Um, and eventually I found a similar bump line in Sasfe and was attacking that as well. And actually by the time the bumps came around with a bit of kind of visualisation work and stuff on that test that I had to do, Actually, I smashed it. It was the highest score I got out of all of the um, all of the, the the tests that they put us through that day, and um, that I, I suppose I want, what I'm saying is I wonder if you can expand on the value of that focus practice for people for when they then you know take their skills to a to, to a more of a sort of an alpine environment. So actually, I'm glad you brought up bumps because I think that is a really really good example mm. um of of that um and actually so i do um i run bumps courses up at um chill factory like once a month okay and yeah. the bumps up there are amazing i they are so realistic i mm. think it, it, it's well I, th- I, would, I would say they're the closest bumps to being in the mountain that you can get in the uk i reckon they're really really good there so that's mm. the first thing second thing i was going to say is um is the amount of mileage you can get, like skiing up and down that section. So I, mm. I think chill might be a little longer, I think. Yeah. Um, but the other thing is um, it's pretty much the same. Uh, yeah, it's pretty much the same gradient all the way down. And if we've, in team, for example, which is where obviously I teach, yeah. is if we're doing bumps anywhere, I often use a run called Tomers. Now, the issue with, with which is a great, Bump run. Have you skied in team? Much? I'm trying to think. I skied the bumps in Val, so I remember having a really good experience skiing with Giles Lewis in the the. I can't remember that. Like the slopes are numbered or were they lettered? Don't know. Uh, well, was... that might be S bumps. Yeah, S was bumps. It in... That's it. Those Bayesy ones, you know, where they have the bump shootout basically thing. But uh, I didn't ski bumps in team. No, I remember, all I remember about team was that it was just great to ski, fast piece. Okay. You know, like go where you want kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's good for that. There's a there's a bump run called Tomers. Well, actually, it's not called Tomers, but the lift is called Tomers. Okay. So we would call it Tomers bumps. Anyway, it's going over towards Val, so it's on kind of that border type mm-hmm. thing, type of thing. Yeah. And um, so there's a section along that bump, on those bumps, which on the flatter section, which is probably a similar gradient to Chill Factory, mm-hmm. and probably, well, Chill Factories are probably a little bit shorter, but either way. The point I was going to make is if if I wanted to loop on there to work on bumps or train people in the bumps, it's probably going to take me, if I'm quick, yeah. maybe 20 minutes per turnaround. And it's a high-speed lift. So yeah. you've got, oh, I don't know how long it is, the bumps themselves, maybe 200 meters worth of bumps that you would use, little bits at the side you'd use. But if you mainly just focus on that stretch of bumps, 
there's maybe 200 meters of bumps that you would use yeah but you've got quite a lot of skiing to be able to repeat that absolutely so it might take 20 minutes per turnaround or maybe yeah 20 minutes probably 20 minutes per turnaround including the lift ride but at chill it's five minutes yes assuming there isn't a big queue so you can do five minutes per run on the same section as the bit i would use at on tomers for mm-hmm. example so you can get a lot more runs in in the time frame so actually i've I think it is for that reason alone, really, and the fact that it's, um, I think, was it Andy David that was head of snow sports then? Or, no, it was Andy or Bennett. Um, Bennett. Yeah, you remember, uh, like, Andy Bennett, freestyle guy. Um, I don't know whether he's still teaching or not. I'm, I hope he is. But, um, yeah, he used to work for Warren Smith. Okay, there was, there was someone else that used to, I can't remember his name now, but he used to be, like ex-British freestyle team, and he's be head of snow of the snow school at Chill Factory, and I believe he trained them how to build the bumps. Oh, okay. So that's why they are so good, mm-hmm. and they obviously continue to. He doesn't work there anymore. Um, they are really, and good. they continue to yeah. do it like that. And sorry, go on. No, I was going to say they are really good. I remember them being kind of just exactly. I mean, they were a little tighter than Alpine bumps, but they were in. You know, they all arrived in the right place. There was a consistent mm. line. You had that kind of scraped bit before you hit the face. And I suppose what was really, what I, I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here on an audio <laughs> podcast, like doing things with my hands to show what my feet would have been doing at that moment. <laughs> but the, the, you, what you do is you get the opportunity to perfect a movement pattern and then repeat it until it's in your, you know, hardwired into your brain. Yeah. What I would add to that, actually, which is quite important if you're going to do that, mm. is is you have to try, you have to, because up there you, you end up with about three or four different lines, because yes. it's quite wide, the slope, um, is trying to skew the different lines to build the versatility, because the danger is, as a negative to skiing in a, in a in a snow dome or snow facility mm-hmm. is you end up repeating the same movement patterns, but without versatility. So you'd have to do it tact, tact, tactically so that you ski not just one line, line there, ski multiple lines and mm-hmm. then vary the lines. So you build in the versatility and the technique to carry it across into the mountains. Cause like you say, they're really rhythmical but the ones on the mountains generally aren't. <laughs> no. It, it, Unless it's skied by good skiers, run after run after run after run. Well, absolutely. But I mean, so for me, the reason that I went back to practice it there was because I was struggling with it, with specifically skiing a zip mm. um, and having that bravery to kind of stay in until you had an opportunity to slow down a little bit to where you kind of were happy and comfortable. You know, like there's a bit in certain zip, zipper lines where you just hanging on until you see an opportunity to just take off that speed. And it might be like a, you know, a big face where you can really compress or a, like a, a slightly longer one where you can really scrape down the backside, for example. And so I yeah. knew that the test in the exam that I was going to do invariably would have been skiing a zipper and as it turned out it was a you know a red piece zip in Zermatt 
Um, and it was, I just needed that, that time in a zit to practice and get all the movements in order, in order to be able to pass that one thing. So I was being a bit tactical, I suppose you could say, but, and at that time, I think when I went there, they only used half of the left side of the piece. So it was pretty zippy, you know, there wasn't many options to ski round lines and, and up and overs and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, but certainly if they've expanded that, you could see how you would have the time to show everyone all the different lines. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So that's what you work on when you're in there with, with your clients running your bumps clinics is, is I suppose, depending on what they want, right? You're showing them different lines initially. Yeah. So I guess probably the first, if they're lower level, I guess the first thing is just getting them down it. So that, yeah, you, you probably just, you know, it's full line, quite skiddy type mm-hmm. thing and then rounder lines and then, different lines and then maybe varying speeds. That's quite an important one. I try to do going faster, slower mm-hmm. to give them actually to give them the skills, but also uh, I think for good psychologically to know, actually I can slow down if I want, or I can speed up if I want, or I can change my line if I want, you know, having that kind of the, the options there mm. to be able to make those changes there and then, but also, more for the mountains. So actually, I'm, I try to use like any artificial slope as a training ground for the mountains. Sometimes people um, like can use it as, it as a training ground in its own right rather than to teach them to be better in the, in the mountain environment. And there's an example I've got for that, actually. When I used to do a lot of coaching on dry slope, mm. I, had, um, I used to do... Um, a lot of race coaching for the for Wickham Race Club, and I had, I did a trip. I, I can't remember whether it was pre-season or in the summer. I'm not quite sure. Um, like a race coaching trip to team, and I had one of the guys on there um, that was like basically he was number one, like racing on plastic, mm-hmm. and I'd ski with him a lot on, uh, like on plastic. Um, mm-hmm. He was coached by me and a number of different other people on plastic. And he'd win everything on plastic, but couldn't ski on the mountain because, or he could, but not not as well as he should because he was too used to going straight mm-hmm. um, rather than trying to use the plastic to ski better on the mountain, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so yeah. turning your courses, turning your courses, trying to turn the feet more so you have more speed control for uh, for the mountain environment, so he really struggled. Like when he got bumped, like rutted, uh, and when he got steeper, because because of that, basically. So that's what I mean about kind of using using the environment to get better for the mountain, as opposed to use the environment to get better down that run one piece, which is where I think it's quite important to build in that versatility. So that might. If we relate, we, we've related that to bumps already, but it could be the same with like carving mm-hmm. or short turns. Is experimenting with different edge angles in a carve turn, for example. Like this is in a in a snow dome. Mm. Experimenting with different amounts of edge and different speeds that you do that. So like the range of movement and the rate of movement, because that then builds in 
to the tools to be able to ski the mountain rather than just ski to ski better at Hemel or Chill Factory or whatever. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. The, the, I think there is something about the consistency of the surface and consistency of the slope angle that definitely makes that much easier. Yes. Yes, definitely. Because otherwise, I, and another, I had another situation a bit like that where it was, you know, I, I was training people for their level three exams a lot in the UK and then took them out to the mountain. But in retrospect, I would have done things different. They were so used to it feeling so good in uh, in the snow dome that when they got on something more challenging on the mountain, yeah, they found that challenging. So, like psychologically as well. Um, so from that point on, I then decided I need to try to teach in a different way to build in the, that versatility and have different expectations as well. Like skiing in more challenging conditions is not going to feel the same as skiing on cord, you know, mm. skiing in a snow dome for the first hour, like it's corduroy, yeah. firm snow, it's going to feel good, but you know, you're possibly better to ski when the snow is more chopped up to not have that false perception of what it can be like on the mountain, if that makes sense. So mm. is giving awareness of that and giving them the tools to be able to have versatility, except that it's not going to feel so good in various conditions yeah. or it's going to feel different to have different expectations for the mountain, different tools and dis- diff- different expectations, if that makes sense. Mm. Now, given that the slope angle is always the same. All right, we talked about changing conditions, but given that slope angle is always the same, the environment is roughly always the same, weather's always the same indoors, What? how do you then increase the difficulty of the task? Like, well, I kind of know the answer, but like maybe you can expand on how you go about increasing difficulty for people. So the so the example I said in the bumps about different lines, um, different lines, different speeds. That's what I do in the bumps. Mm. For like long turns, for example, first of all, you might have a set corridor that you want them to ski within. So that might be I don't know, five meter wide corridor, for example. Mm. And say maybe the first few runs they can do five turns within that corridor still within the same corridor, encourage them to maybe get six turns in and still be clean. So they have to get more angles. So you're encouraging more range of movement by getting them to get more turns in within the same corridor. Mm -hmm. You could then have varying corridors as well. So you could have, I would probably initially do it in a slightly wider corridor, as much angle as you can get, then a slightly narrower corridor, much Mm -hmm. angle you can get and then vary the corridors. So it's the same thing, really, that I would be doing in the bumps, but in long terms, um, because that's then encouraging them to you do different movement patterns rather than do the same movement pattern over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. So that's, by, that's making the task harder. Short terms, similar thing, you might aim for, um, I don't know, like a, two, three-meter-wide corridor, for example, trying to grip from the full line, say. Yeah. Um, once they can do that, narrow the corridor a little bit, but still try and grip at the same point. So you're, you're getting them used to doing different movement patterns again. And then you could, you could do, like, hourglasses and things like that. So start off with a slightly wider turn, then narrow it, mm. and then open it out again, and then do them in reverse. 
basically just doing everything, just doing lots of different things to build versatility so they have more tools to choose from. Because obviously we can't make the slope steeper, so we have to make the tasks harder. Mm-hmm. And actually you could do loads of other things. You could do look like balance drills, you know, like continually jumping, trying to have good kind of posture and things like that, mm-hmm. or running or skating uh, or balancing on one leg, skiing on one ski, you know, all of those things. Anything that challenges people will build in like more tools to be able to make corrections, basically, mm-hmm. rather than just repeat this short turn and this long turn in these corridors. Because otherwise, when they get on a mountain, um, they're not, they're, they're going to try and do that one turn. Yeah on every slope and that won't work obviously and actually i spend a long time explaining that so you could do i don't know another example so hemel for example is a little bit steeper at the top and flattens at the bottom most mm-hmm. in fact i'm trying to think now most snow domes are a bit like that so steeper at the top flatter at the bottom mm-hmm. you could another one could be short turns trying to grip from the full line but stay at the same speed throughout the run so they're having to change their line Mm-hmm. just different things like that to encourage versatility yeah and then when you get let's say you then take one of those clients from the indoor environment I mean I'm, I'm assuming they would have been skiing before but the indoor environment then you they, they come out and see you in team for example mm-hmm. what are the sort of things that they're saying when they come to ski in a bigger and more varied environment. Now I'm guessing one of the first things is that they're surprised that they are more maybe fatigued in the legs or something. Cause you don't get that sort of 20 second burst or 40, 40 second burst going up and down. And then the rest of getting dragged up the drag lift, you know, the, the slopes are longer. Is it, what, what is, what are the kind of things that they notice about the difference between the indoor environment and the alpine environment. Not your words, but their their observations. So not I don't so are you kind of thinking someone that's never been to the mountains before? No, but I'm guessing I'm because I'm I'm assuming that most people will have, but but the the observations that you get from clients that you've skied with indoors who then have come to see you in team. And the sort of things that they they say, like their their observations on on what the differences are, what do they notice? So you probably you well you said a couple already. So they yes, there will be fatigue definitely. Yeah. Um. They're also they may talk about you know particularly teen as well because you're high like yeah. being out of breath. So fatigue as in muscular fatigue as opposed to out of breath and being out of breath. So they're, mm-hmm. they're probably the two, but equally you might have di- like the different snow conditions, like how to ski the different snow conditions in comparison to skiing indoors um, or weather conditions as well. Cause obviously they're not used to that mm-hmm. and the speed actually, cause obviously it's quicker. Real snow is faster. Well, you know, just because it's steeper, isn't it? Or could be mm. steeper, but yeah. yes, it's quicker. Yeah. Um, so they're probably, 
they're probably the main ones. Yeah. Okay. And then, like, how, like, things that I would maybe do to help with that might be, first of all, might be, like, for example, maybe fitness, like fatigue and things like that, is just making them aware. Mm. You know, like you've just said, you know, it's longer runs, you're going to get more tired. You know, that's kind of normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we tend to do short stretches anyway. So, like, if you're skiing a run, not necessarily doing it all in one go, but doing it in, in sections. Yeah. And then over a week, say, you'd increase the length of those sections. It's, I mean, it's the same thing. You're just building people up gradually um, to kind of address the fatigue side of things. Um, but actually, that's quite interesting what you're saying about muscular fatigue. I know it's not really... And, and just feeling physically fatigued. It, mm. Not specific to your question necessarily, but I think this is quite an important point to kind of make. Um, I, I quite get, I get, and I'm sure you have, and I'm sure many people have, you get a lot of people that say, oh, I'm, Stuart, I'm getting really, really tired. I don't really understand. Mm. I can't be doing something. Maybe I'm not doing something right. And I'm like, well, it's not necessarily you're doing something wrong. Uh, so I say, well, how many hours skiing are you doing per day? Oh, you know, five or six hours. Okay. How many days a week are you skiing? Six days out of seven. Okay. If you went to the gym <laughs> five to six hours of, yeah. a day for yeah. a week, do you think you'd be tired? Yes. Okay. Well, <laughs> so I often find like that is quite an important thing as well, is that not specifically related to your question, but just as a general point is that maybe people think that skiing isn't tiring but obviously we all know that if you're skiing hard which yeah. they are because they're trying to get better yeah um is it's tiring <laughs> and if you do it all day of course it's tiring <laughs> yeah yeah i've never really understood that kind of first lift last lift thing you know I, i've always thought <laughs> myself you know uh, less Less is more in a way, you know, more like more quality. Um, yeah. Especially given how the conditions deteriorate over a course of a day. Like, I don't, I don't know why anyone would want to be skiing. The one I really don't understand is night skiing. You know, <laughs> like, people love night skiing. I'm just like, why are you doing this? Piece of trashed. You know, they've been going all day. It's freezing cold. Like, what is the... I think you do night skiing once, and then you realise it's terrible. And then you just like, give up. It's... um. It's very funny, but yeah, there is there is that certainly. Um, I think people do tend to overdo it a little bit, but you can kind of see why, I suppose. If you if you sit behind a desk, you know, in an office, fifty one weeks of the rest of the year, you kind of want to make the most of it, right? Like I, I could understand. Of course, of I course, totally understand that. Yeah. No, I just um, I I like to point that out because then they're like, oh yeah, I haven't really thought of it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Adds a bit, adds a bit of perspective to it, I find. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. How does um um the question that's just popped into my head is like, how do you get sort of slope access? Because you're an independent working in the UK, you're going from different slopes, this, that, and the other. Like, is there a how do you get slope access? How do you organise days like bumps clinics and all that sort of stuff? How does that work in the what are the logistics of that in the background? Okay, so basically. Um, at each facility, you have a, an agreement to work as an external, an external instructor, basically. So, 
everyone has to be pre-approved so they they have all of our like insurance details and licenses and things like that um and i think everyone has to be a minimum of a level three basically mm-hmm. i well they do it at hemel i'm not sure at the others but um something along those lines but everyone has to be pre-approved and uh yeah so they have all our details basically mm-hmm. and then we have to pre-book everything as well so we can't just rock up and do what we like it all has to be pre-booked and pre-paid for and things like that for lift passes etc um yeah so that's how it kind of works there okay and and then if you want to put on like specialist clinics like uh, or do they let you know when like mobile days are or, or do you organize that with them so bumps courses, for example, I I kind of plan my. They build bumps. So chill, for example, they build bumps once a month, mm. and I just find out when they're do, building their bumps and plan my courses around when they're building bumps. Other courses where we don't need bumps, mm. um, I decide when would work for me, and then contact the slopes, check that it's okay with them, and then they put it in their diaries so it doesn't clash with any any events and things that they're running. I just kind of, sorry, go on. Like race training and freestyle and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly. So they have, like all the facilities have a regular regular freestyle night generally. Mm -hmm. Um, So I try to avoid those. Um, And I try to do things during the day, during the week, just because it's quieter generally. Mm -hmm. Weekends, obviously more people available. So weekends are busier, but the snow isn't as good. So I try to do it at the quietest times possible, really. Um, they, the clients just have a better experience, really, because then you're not queuing so much and things like that. Obviously, as you come into winter, then that's different. It's going to be busy all the time. But even then, during the day, during the week, is quieter than at the weekends. Mm. Uh, so it's a, a better experience for everybody, really. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's terrific. Um, good. I was just, I just um, while I'm sitting here because we're using uh, Facebook Messenger to do this call, but the um, I just came across uh, something that I should mention. There's a guy called Andrew Reed got in touch with me, and I asked him. Well, he was just basically asking me about the podcast, but I said to him, I asked him what it is about the podcast that he liked, and he said it's the technical conversations. He said I started skiing late on in life, and my ski holidays revolve around a revolve a lot. No, I revolve around a lot of social drinking and eating. Nobody <laughs> nobody really wants to talk about the technical side of skiing. So your podcast gives me an insight into the technical side and the more professional side and other experiences that can be had on the mountains. Keep it up and don't change the format, uh, which is cool. I don't think I talk enough about technical the technical aspects of skiing on this, this podcast because I think it ends up being like personality pieces but we've actually covered a lot of tech ground, which is pretty cool. Um, so I'm, I'm pleased about that. Oh, you're still there? Good. Good yeah. yeah, I'm still there. I was just listening. I thought you were going to say something else. Sorry. Yeah, no, it's all right. I wasn't going to fill that space. But um, okay, cool. Do you have anything else you want to cover? The only, well, I, I kind of had a little think earlier on, and I thought there was a couple of things which I think might be quite useful to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that is. You know, like we said about the example I said to you about um, people going away for one week skiing, skiing every day, Mm. fatigue, things like that. And a lot of people don't ski in between 
holidays, really. Mm. Um, obviously, there are the, the keen skiers that do ski in between the holidays, which mm. will, you know, get more benefit from it. So I thought, and obviously we've spoken a lot about that anyway, but there were another couple of areas, and I'm trying that which I think would be useful to type, kind of talk about a little bit was, mm. you know, how active people are physically, like mm. prior to holidays, like how much preparation they kind of do beforehand to help with their holiday itself. And also the same thing with the, the mental approach as well, because both of those elements you can practice and actually not be on the slope, as it were. Absolutely. I agree. So um, how do you advise, so let's say you've got, I agree because one, one of the things, I think one of the client experiences is you ski, you come back home, you don't think about skiing until like two weeks before you go on your holiday into the next, the next one and you come back and you are worse, right, than you were. So I'm going skiing on Friday and I've got to get myself kind of in a presentable shape for, for ski season but the first things I'm going to do are not going to be, you know, ragging up and down the Zermatt Glacier. It's going to be, you know, slow, slow speed, basic parallel stuff to get my balance all in the right place in the same way that I've seen, you know, in August and July, in the same way that I've seen World Cup stars doing, you know, because that's, they work a lot on the kind of the fundamentals. And so... I don't see how, as a as a tourist as such, you can you can expect to be good like straight away, or maybe they don't care. Um, but you, there is certainly a value in like preparing, and part of that preparing might be coming to see someone like you, you know, a couple of times or once every three months, right? Definitely, definitely, and uh, and like you said, actually doing things like when they are on skis doing things at lower speed more accurate mm. as opposed to higher speed just kind of ripping around the mountain um like you say to get get more accurate get more balanced get warmed up get used to sliding again yeah all of those things i think are really important and that and you know even if they you know they do go to the slope to a to a, an indoor slope somewhere and have a bit of a, a warm up on their own without you know being coached necessarily but do it with purpose, not just go and have a blast around, you know, that type of thing. But obviously if they want to progress quicker, that's the point where you would then need someone to help them with that and coach them through it. So yeah, definitely, definitely. And then, then in terms of, uh, I mean, do you advise clients on physical preparation for, for their, their trip to the Alps? So I do, I ask them how active they are. So I do, so I work with a strength and conditioning coach, actually. So mm -hmm. people who are super keen, I mean, that's not my speciality. So I in, will steer them in his direction mm -hmm. um, because, like I say, it's not my speciality. I do it, and it's made a massive difference to me. Yeah. Um, so I'm talking from experience. And actually, when I started to do it, I think we maybe touched on this earlier on in the podcast, actually, but... Mm. Um, when I started doing strength strength and conditioning, it was more to alleviate back pain, which yeah. has helped massively with that. But the knock-on effect is it's it helps with my skiing as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I in that I kind of tell people my story, and if they want to go down that route, 
um, and you know have a bit of structure to, um, to you know to help with their kind of their you know their physical strength and things like that, which in turn is going to help them with skiing, but actually in life anyway. Yeah. Um, then I steer them in his direction, um, or you know just you know encourage them to be active in general if they're not particularly active you know try to do things that encourage balance and coordination you know go for walks just be more active than you were before it's better than not doing anything um and and like i said if they want to take it a bit more seriously then steer them down the kind of the strength conditioning coaching route Mm. um but actually i find and i explain to them as well is in fact I, I I always do this example. There was someone who I trained many by many years ago. He hadn't been skiing very long. He'd only been skiing a couple of years, I think. He'd done his Basie Level One, but he was a like a he was a pro touch rugby player. Okay. Um. So like a, a ripped athlete, basically, not like a like quite yeah. So like mm. an athlete, mm. basically, or he was an athlete. Um and. I started coaching him, got through his level two, then he started training for his level three. Um, I've actually, I haven't spoken to him for a long time, so I don't, no, I don't know if he ever did do his level three, but mm. he I to do some race training on the glacier. And by the end of, he went out for 10 days, I think it was. And by the end of the 10 days, he beat one of the, like one of the older race kids. He's never done racing before. Mm-hmm. And I put this down to, that the fact that he's an athlete already, so I always use this this example, is if you can be more athletic and fit and strong, Mm. you're going to ski better because there's a better base to build from. Yeah. Um, So that's one example I say. But also in the the training, as you're training, it helps with your mental strength as well. So if you say I'm going to do 10 reps of or whatever it might be and you the last two um uh, the last two reps are hard to do your brain saying I want to stop but you push through anyway it's mm. it's creating a stronger mindset so the the physicality side helps with the mental side as well mm. uh, as well as being able to coordinate and have the strength and and flexibility to be able to do what you want your body to do when you're skiing. So, so that's, yeah, that's one of the main things I try to, you know, to educate people in, I guess. I think that's, that is, uh, so it's interesting that you caught me on to, you know, this day particular, because this morning I just felt, I was listening to something last night and I've realized that I had got out of the habit of walking. And I used to walk a lot when I had my dog. Um, and I don't walk anymore. So since the dog died, like it's all just gone. I don't know where I used to find the time to go walking, but I'm kind of going to try and put it back in my life somehow. And so I went out this morning, got up, was like, right, while well, I'm still thinking about it, I'm going. And kind of I went and ended up walking for like half an hour. But I already feel great, you know. Like a, you know, I'm planning to kind of add that into my life along with all the other active stuff that I kind of try to do to just keep, you know, like you say, for reasons of, of injury and back and, and whatnot. I've got some interesting stuff to say about back, actually, which I need to mention. <laughs> um, I'm going to write that down here. Um, but the 
one of the things that I found, or I, so I, you know, I try to move, but I'm not these days like in the, in the gym or anything like that anymore. I actually think that for skiing, I think agility and being lighter is better for that because I think that the, the leg strength comes from being on snow anyway. Um, so at the start of the season, you, you know, I cannot ski from the top of Morjan down to the bottom in one hit, but after about a month, I can. And so that comes from just skiing daily. But I think there's more value in having quick feet and agility rather than outright strength. I think you leave that for the downhillers and you know, all those stuff you see of the kind of the World Cup guys doing, you know, big reps and massive squats and all that sort of stuff. Well, they're, they're athletes, you know, they're not doing what we're doing. And I think there's more value in, in, in speed of movement um, rather than, than straight up strength. Um, but yeah, I'm kind of driving, I don't know, my, my pre-season fitness looks like go skiing a lot, do a bit of dirt biking, which is great for the quads. And um, and walking, I think that's about as much as I'm going to do. And playing football, so that's kind of the the, the active active side of what I do these days. You sound pretty pretty um, pretty active to me, <laughs> Dave. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it. Put it that way. But uh, but you know, but that that then leads on to and this may tie in to the back thing as well because I recently came across a really interesting document it was given to me by a friend of mine Danny who's also featured on this podcast actually but he's studying for a PhD in and he's doing his thesis on pain I think pain perception or something like that it's a really really interesting document it says if you've sort of multiple times injured the same injury which is my experience with my lower back is actually what can happen is the the sensors I think they're called no 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 receptors or something like that. They um, and anyone who wants this information can write to me and I'll send you the document because uh, it's really really interesting. But basically, what can happen is the receptors that send the, the the signals of pain to the lower back, which then set, uh, to the spinal cord, which then sends the signal to the brain, can become oversensitive, so that they react too much to um, to something that they perceive as pain but actually isn't that serious and so you end up having this sort of repetitive cycle of your, your, your back like locking up or seizing up or, and mine is you know I move in the wrong way and my back goes and then all the muscles like tense up and it takes ages to kind of un, undo it all and um I went through this, went through this workbook, and it's super, super interesting, and it's made a massive difference, and it seems to have calmed down this pain response that has been my experience for the last God knows how many years, like three, four years, um, in fact, before that, but it was just getting silly, you know, like I couldn't even make like the most basic movements without this kind of pain signal being almost turned up to like, 10 you know instead of it being a two or a three and it's made a huge difference and so that's one example of a kind of a mental approach of like getting some sort of perspective on what is actually happening rather than 
the perception of, oh, this is a disaster, it's all going wrong again, kind of thing. Do you see what I mean? Definitely. That's really, really interesting, actually. There's, um, I'll send you that document a, when I've got it, because I think it's really interesting for people to read, and it might be useful for your clients, you know. Definitely. No, I'll be, I'll be interested for them, but also for me, actually. That, that's really interesting. There's a book that I read, actually, called, um, I think it's called Meditation to Ease Pain, Pain Relief. Mm-hmm. And it's along the same lines as that about um, you've got primary pain, so the actual pain that there is, and then the secondary pain, like how you read. And that's along the same kind of lines of what you're saying, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and actually, I found that really interesting because what I found is um, with, the, with that pain side of things is through kind of meditation it sounds a bit deep but it's worked for me is Mm. is almost like recognizing yeah okay i can feel pain here Mm. but rather than like i feel pain it's getting worse etc it's just kind of monitoring it and seeing how it changes and Mm. it's really bizarre because what happens is like it's it varies so the amount and the size and what it and it, it basically, they encourage you to kind of observe it from the outside. And then over a period of time, whilst you're doing that, mm. it seems to decrease. Yes. Not because you're trying to, but just because you're kind of observing it. And then it then goes away. It sounds really out there, but um, I, I find that that really does help as well. Mm. No, I don't think it sounds out there at all. I think, you know, one of the things that I've started to do just before I go to bed at night is journaling positive things that have happened during the day so getting away from this negative cycle is oh you know my back will not ever get better oh i'm stuck with this and it's only ever going to get worse like looking for positives and actually almost dismissing this because i've come to view it as a thing now like a a a sort of a, a a thing where you would say something like oh my back in quotes you know like my back is a problem or it's like is it actually you know or is it just a thing and i'm not going to talk about this thing anymore i'm just going to get on with my life and i'm not going to be held back by this thing anymore um and it's a sort of a change of mindset that that i'm trying to create generally in in my life about a lot of things you know get away from negativity and and, and try and see the positives and work out what positive things are surrounding me um, that I like to do. And uh, it's it's something that we're focusing on quite heavily in, in my house, actually. My wife's doing a similar thing. So, um, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, I find that really interesting. Like that point about looking at the, looking for the positives as opposed to negatives. Mm. If you, there's a, I was quite, I can't remember. There's, there's lots of podcasts I've listened to where they talk about that, and mm. I, I try it as well. And if you, basically, your brain will find whatever you're looking for. So if you're looking for the positives, you'll find the positives. If you look for the negatives, you'll find the negatives. So looking mm. for solutions as opposed to woe me, like type thing, it helps you kind of find ways forward, doesn't it? Yeah, very much so, very much. And we're surrounded by a lot of negativity. You know, like I, I find that the UK when I go back to visit it, I find it a very, very negative place. There's a lot of people worrying about a lot of things. It's the nature, I think, of British people to worry, I suppose. But the 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 media doesn't help. You know, if you turn off the TV and you turn off social media, life suddenly becomes much better because you're just not surrounded yeah. and bombarded by 
the latest messages that are telling you that everything is terrible. Um, you know, I'm just sick of that. Absolutely sick of people telling me that this is crap and that is crap. And, you know, this is the next thing to worry about. I just, I just don't care. I just don't care. And actually, when you, you turn it all off, you actually realise that it's just all... You don't have to worry about it, you know? If there's some important news that needs to come, it will find me, you know, somehow. I don't need to worry about it so much. And I think that, that negativity has caused a lot of my back issues over the last... If I think about all the negativity that's bombarded us over the last two or three years to do with COVID and stuff, um, you know, and the worry that that's caused with the ski school... And, you know, whether it's going to be a good, you know, all right season or not all right season, all that sort of stuff. I think it can't help but have a bad effect on you physically, you know, because there's just so much stuff that you're to told to worry about. But if you turn it all off, apparently none of it matters. You know, I don't feel like I'm missing out at all. That's a great outlook to have, Dave. Mm, well, I'd like to think so. The last thing I would want to add just to the points that you made about mental training which I think that is really really important is that you can get a lot done this is really going to sound really out there um, Stuart, so, so bear, you know, bear with me but if you are prepping for your ski holiday you can get quite a lot done mentally by just rehearsing what it feels like to ski in your head in the 10 minutes before you go to bed you know, like if you really focus and you do that kind of mental visualization, you can really get all your your movements working because you can kind of see yourself and you can see, you know, you can see an image of yourself skiing and you can see where the transition point is and you can see where you would push off from one ski to the other. You could ski, you can see, you know, what your hands are supposed to be doing and, and feel the movements and feel that image with color and light and movement and all that sort of thing I did that I used that quite successfully in some of the exams that I've had to pass but just to kind of get yourself into tune there's a lot you can do just by through kind of visualization and seeing yourself skiing the best that you can possibly see yourself you know have you done that quite a lot have you I have done that quite a lot yeah in my life um for sure I, d I did it very successfully with that bumps run thing that I was talking about before that kind of zip line bumps run I, I visualized the whole thing and relate I think I've talked about it on this pod before in a different episode but related it to an image of kind of walking through like a, a corridor with a series of doors with kind of exams passed and at the end there was this one door that relied on this kind of bumps run um, and I could see myself kind of walking through the door and into this place where I would pass this exam. That was really powerful, actually. But but I, I genuinely think if you think very hard about your own skiing, you can you can feel those movements and you can get the timing in order and all that sort of stuff. You have a really good look around um, your own skiing and kind of see how it should look. And just so that it's clear in your mind when you do finally arrive in that physical place, you know? Yeah. That's really interesting. There's, um, I can't remember if we spoke about it last time, but yeah. there was um, a study along those lines of, um, and I can't remember where it was, and I tried to look it up the other day, but I couldn't find it. But 
Um, I've heard it quite a lot about, I think there were like three groups um, of, of people learning how to play the keyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and one group, I'm trying to remember it exactly because it's a really interesting study. One group basically had a keyboard. They were taught a scale, but none of them could play the keyboard, by the way. Mm. Um, and one group had a keyboard to take away and they were taught a scale and they had to practice it over a number of days or whatever. And then they had another group which didn't have a keyboard and they all they had to do was to visualize. Mm. Um, and what was the third group? can't remember. But anyway, actually, the, the main point was the group that visualized mm. um, performed equally as well as the group that had a keyboard to be able to practice it. Oh, that's interesting. Um, which I, I find is super interesting. And with on that same, and I've heard it on numerous podcasts, mm. your brain doesn't know the difference between reality and reality. So mm. if you're practicing those certain movement patterns, like you've just said about skiing, your mm. body still thinks it's doing it, even if it's not doing it. That's curious. Okay. If, if I find that study at some point, I'll send it over to you because mm. it's, I find that unbelievable. There's there's quite a few studies like that as well, mm. um, which I find is pretty amazing that you can train yourself to do things without actually doing them. Yeah. Uh, I did a similar thing, actually, on my Euro test. Mm. Uh, and not to the same extent, necessarily, as to what you were saying, but we'd, I'd inspect the course and then visualize sections of the course when I'm coming up the lift. Mm-hmm. And I did that every single run. So, not not every single run, but every single time I went back up the lift. Mm. And I did that in training as well to help me remember the different sections of it. So, Mm. it's less of a, oh, oh my God, there's a gate here. You know it because you've already played it through in your mind. Yeah, that's right. Um, So, a similar thing to what you were doing, but not intentionally doing that. But, Mm. um, yeah, no, I find that really interesting. Um, yeah, no, definitely. I, th- I think it's really valid, and it's um, it's something that I mean, it, you have to kind of work hard at it because sometimes it's hard to quieten your brain down. You know, we've all got so much going on inside our own heads. Well, I certainly have, anyway. Um, but you know, in order to be able to focus down on that one thing that you're you're doing, but it's certainly it's certainly something that that. I think people would benefit from for sure, and and you know you, I'm given given the, given how your marketing looks to, to loop this back to where we were, I think it's definitely something you could bring to your clients and be you know be quite unique, you know. Mm, definitely, definitely, that's no, a good idea. I mean, it's not. I don't really talk about visualizations too much, so um, that's interesting with clients. Sorry, so that's interesting, uh, an interesting angle, definitely definitely cool all right well look i'm going to um i've got to go i've got uh, a theater class a ballet lesson and all sorts Ooh. of stuff to go to none of these are for me they are for my daughter <laughs> uh, but i'm a ballet dad so the um just remind everybody before you shoot off where people can find you because this will go out as a second episode of of our podcast series Okay, so you can find me on my website, which mm-hmm. is skifocus.co.uk. Okay. I do a lot on social media, so there's there's loads of content 
um, on my Instagram, which is Ski Focus, and on my Facebook. Ski Focus on uh, Facebook, actually, and Instagram. There's loads of, like, I've done loads of reels and things like that with little tips mm -hmm. um, to help with different things in people's skiing. Um, and some of those refer to the, the mindset side as well. If you want to find out more about more mindset-specific content, mm. then that's on my personal page. So that's Stuart J. Bernard on Instagram and the same on Facebook as well. Um, that has got loads and loads of mindset kind of reels and things like that, like quick kind of mm. videos to get different ideas uh, of tactics and things that help me manage emotions and things okay. like that. So, yeah, there's loads, loads on Loads on social media, really. <laughs> okay. Well, after we've done this, drop me. I don't know whether I've got your phone number or not for WhatsApp, but if you drop me a phone number, and I'll send you that document um, on the um, on the study about pain perception because I think it's really well. It's not. It's like a workbook for you to work through, and it's got like a whole bunch of exercises and stuff. It's really. I said, I've felt great since I've done it. Um, it really puts everything into perspective, so uh, it's worth a look. No, I appreciate that, Dave. That would be really good. That would be really good. I wanted to say, actually, thank you so much for uh, inviting me on this. It's really cool to have a chat with you and also to um, to chat with a like-minded, you know, like-minded person, actually, who has um, similar kind of outlook on life, which is really cool. So, so thank you. And also, I'd like to say, Dave, thank you for all the content you're getting out there, like with your podcast. It's It's amazing. So... Good work. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I really I, enjoyed it, so yeah. thank you. I'm going to, going to cry now. I feel, I feel great. But the, the, oh, don't the, cry. <laughs> the, it, I don't know. I'm just doing, I, you, the people I meet by through doing this is just amazing. You know, the conversations that we've had over these like three hours is just brilliant. And you know, one day I'll we'll get to meet in person. It'll be brilliant. And and I'm just yeah. I don't know. I I kind of lost a little bit of focus on it over the summer, but. Actually, now there's there's these two episodes that we've got in the can here. I've got I had an amazing conversation the other day um, uh, with Darren Turner, and I've got a couple yeah. of others coming up. And it's just it's fascinating to see what people have kind of seen and what they're into. And I think it's it's just it's great. It's great. And and someone needs to record all this stuff for posterity because otherwise this kind of this stuff gets. I don't know, like lost, you know, uh, when we when we depart and we go, all of this stuff is is there for other people, and it's like a resource that I'm hoping that other ski instructors can use without having to find out all this stuff themselves, like I've had to do over these years, you know. Yeah, no, definitely, I couldn't agree more. That's yeah, it's amazing. Right. So thank you. Well, no worries. Well, thank you. Thanks for taking the time this morning. You're very welcome. You're very welcome.